going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm going to start off at the beginning, kind of leading us into one conversation on one particular elephant. Then we're going to transition partway through and talk about a second elephant today. We're in the middle of this series on elephants, and uh, hopefully you're geared up for us tackling a few this morning. The first one I want to kind of talk about is this idea that if we think about We often have a problem with this book. We often have a problem with this book. Now, what I mean by that is, we don't just have a problem obeying it. We have a problem reading it. And I don't just mean reading it in terms of like the number of times you read it, or how often you read it, or how much dust is acquired on it before the next time you read it. What I mean is how we read it. We often have a problem with how we read the Scriptures. Maybe an elephant that is behind a lot of the elephants we're talking about through this series is this idea of how we read the Scriptures. I started to notice the tension in myself when I was in about junior high with kind of how we approach the Bible. How it is that we read it. Because I would read the text, I would see something that made complete, absolute, total sense to me, I'd go into Sunday school and go, this is what I think it says. And then the teacher would go, no, it's pretty much the exact opposite of what you just said. And I went, wait a sec, that's confusing to me. How can one group of Christians who absolutely love God with all of their heart believe one thing? And how can one opposite group of Christians who absolutely believe and love God with all of their heart believe something completely and totally different? I was told, just read the Bible literally, and if you read it literally, it'll just figure itself out and you'll be in great shape. And so I tried to read it literally, and I would notice a church down the street that believed that there were no spiritual gifts for today. Charismatic gifts especially were completely dead. And then just down the road about one mile would be a church that every Sunday would speak prophecy over one another, would speak in tongues, and would declare great praise to God, and I'm going, wait a second, this seems weird. Or you go into one church, and they would ordain women to preach, and teach, and lead. And you go down the street to the next church, and they would not even permit a woman to stand up and even read the Bible in church. How can that be? How can one come to such great conclusions and another one such great different conclusions? It seems like we have a tension with how we read the Bible. Now, I know some of you are going, no, 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 hold on. It's really clear, Us, Relax. Don't get all bent out of shape. But the reality is, if we are really honest with ourselves, we have to admit that it's not always as clear as we think it is. So let me give you some illustrations. If you go into a Christian bookstore... These are some of the books you're going to find on the shelf. You're going to find War. We talked about that last week. Four Christian Views. Divorce and Remarriage. Four Christian Views. Four Views on Eternal Security, on Church Government. Four Views on Hell. There's something about the number four. I didn't know that before I started looking into this a little bit. But we're big on that. You might look at that list and you go, Russ, these, I mean, these are deep, complex just complicated subjects, it's obvious why you would have multiple opinions or ideas. But 
on the core fundamental things, there's great clarity. We're all on the same page. Until you just move down the shelf a little bit and you find four views on salvation, four views on baptism, four views on the Lord's Supper. And you go, wait a second, I thought in the essentials we're all locked in. Or you just go a little further down the bookcase and you find a whole other set of books. A set that basically causes us to ask the question, if we don't believe the Bible addresses everything, how come we act as if it does? Here's a list. Bible answers for almost all of your questions. Cooking with the Bible. Recipes for biblical meals. Gardening with biblical plants. I love that one. One of my favorites, if you go all the way down the list here to near the bottom, Seven Secrets to Bible-Made Millionaires. Yeah, I, I didn't know that existed. And then last but not least, Weather in the Bible. We cover everything, apparently. And we're willing to spend money to gain the biblical insight on these subjects. Obviously, I'm kind of making jest, but one of the ideas is we have a biblical interpretation problem, and I believe in many ways that biblical interpretation problem leads to a lot of the elephants that we're talking about. This morning, I just want to begin to kind of wrestle with, just for a few moments, why is it that we have this problem? And the first reason I think we do is we have subtly made the Bible king. We have subtly made the Bible king. I mean this. We've made this book a book of answers rather than a revelation of Jesus. We've made this book the idol that we begin to worship rather than worshiping the Son of God. We have made this so central to our faith that we now worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures rather than the Holy Spirit. We've so put all of our focus and attention on this that we've been blinded to the reality that this is expressing a truth about someone that we're intended to have a relationship with. Christian Smith put it this way, The Bible is not about offering things like a biblical view of dating, but rather about how God the Father offered His Son, Jesus Christ, to death to redeem a rebellious world from the slavery and damnation of sin. The Bible is not about conveying biblical principles and managing a Christian business. It is instead about Christ on the cross, triumphing over all principalities and powers, and so radically transforming everything we consider to be our business. Scripture, this view helps to see, is not about guiding Christian emotion management and conquering our anger problems. But it's rather about Jesus Christ being guided by His unity with the Father to absorb the wrath of God against sin in His death and conquering the power of sin in His resurrection. Scripture then ceases to be about teaching about biblical manhood and womanhood or biblical motherhood and fatherhood and becomes instead the story of how a covenant-making and promise-keeping God took on full human personhood in Jesus Christ in order to reconcile this alienated and wrecked world to the eternally gracious Father. See, Christ is King. 
And we've subtly begun to replace him at the center with this book declaring truth about him. Let me give you a, a picture illustration. Maybe you've seen this picture before. But what we have is a sign that's pointing toward the author of the sign, and instead we find ourselves bowing to the sign. I think subtly we have begun to shift into this idea where we've made the Bible king. The second thing I think that biblical interpretation is an issue is we have allowed agenda, tradition, and opinion to inform our stances rather than the text. Tradition, agenda, opinion, our own ideas, our own thinking... Basically, we often come to the text with our own pre-understanding. We often come to the text wanting confirmation bias. You've heard that term, correct? Confirmation bias is the idea that I'm going to favor information that says what I already believe. So if I believe a certain thing to be true, when I begin to read something, it's going to confirm that that very idea is true. They do research all the time. They take a very middle ground, just statement, whether it's like a short paragraph or something describing, and they have two parties that come in with diametrically opposed opinions, and when they walk out, they both say, that absolutely defended my very position. And we tend to do that, I think, with the Scriptures. Here's a little... Quote I came across. The Bible seems to say many things that can be reasonably read and theologized in various ways. In studying the various sides of this heated debate, one gets the distinct feeling that it is actually the divergent pre biblical interests of the many interpreters, both traditionalist and feminist, that drive their scriptural readings as much as the texts themselves. The point he's making is that it's our own pre-understanding that we're bringing to the text that actually is informing our understanding of the text. Scott McKnight said it another way. He said this, Connected to this view of inerrancy is the view of a Bible reading that takes a sound Christian idea that the Bible's message is clear to any able-minded Bible reader. It's a great, sound idea. And it ratchets it up one notch so that the Bible reader thinks whatever I see in the Bible is what the Bible is saying. This is my way of saying that one's interpretation of Scripture becomes as infallible as the Bible itself. And since everything interlocks, giving in one inch is the first step in apostasy. What he's getting at is we sometimes get an opinion that's so formed and so focused that we begin to read the text to say the very thing we want it to say. And then when someone with a different opinion asks us about it, we instantly go, well, you must be a heretic. And the reason we go to that extreme, and some of you go, well, we don't go to that extreme. But we do, because what we do is we connect the dots. We say, I'll give you an illustration, you have to believe in a little 24-hour day in order for creation to be reality. Okay? That's debated. Great. We don't need to go into the debate of that. But the point is, we often go, well, if you don't believe that, then that means you don't believe Genesis. If you don't believe Genesis, then you don't believe how the fall happened. If you don't believe the fall happened, then you must realize that Jesus, why did he even come? Which means you probably don't even believe Jesus. 
I don't know how we got there quite yet, but I realize that what we do is we link them all together and then say, therefore, you're a complete heretic. Again, it's based on some of the tensions we have with how we interpret the Bible. So let me suggest an approach. And this is going to be very simplistic. This is going to be things that you have already heard many times over. But I'm going to add a little twist or two to the end that I think will help us as we go through the rest of this series. All right? First of all, most of us already have an understanding that when you interpret the Scriptures, you do so both grammatically and literally. What I mean by that is, what is the grammar of the text saying? What is the sentence saying? What does it literally mean? If it, you've probably heard the phrase, if literal sense makes common sense, seek to make no other sense about it, right? Just take it at face value. Except the times that you don't take it at face value. But you get the idea. Grammatical, literal, is just a, a pretty standard way of looking at it. Here's another standard way of looking at the text. The historical and contextual side of things. What I mean by that is, what is the historical context in which the author is writing. So very simply, what is happening in history at the time that he's writing? Why is he writing what he's writing? And what did it mean to the people that he was writing it to? Not what does it mean to Russ Davis in 2012, but what did it mean to the writer then? What did it mean to his audience? How is it that they're understanding what it is he's saying? But then, on top of that, there's the literal or the literary context. What I mean there is that you interpret the text by using the text. That you allow the text to inform itself. So a simple way of saying that is as you look at a particular word, that word should be informed by the sentence it's in. That sentence should be informed by the paragraph it's in. That paragraph by the section. That section by the chapter. That chapter by the book. That book by the testament. That testament by the whole narrative, right? that there's a way of allowing the text to inform itself. So let me add these two other little suggestions as to how we further read the text. They're going to be simplistic. I'm just going to cover them in brief, and then we will move on. They are these. First, that I think we have to look at it through the lens of narrative also. So when you look at a particular verse, look at it in light of it, the whole grand narrative, the grand story. Too often what we do is we take this story and then we just go to this passage and we go, that's what I'm supposed to know on that particular page, on that verse, and we withdraw it from the overarching narrative. The, the grand story is to be an overarching interpretive paradigm for us. What it says in a specific point will not and should not contradict the grand overarching story. Okay, The second subtle idea is this, that we're to interpret the Bible redemptively. What I mean by redemptively is this, that the Scriptures tell the story of where we fall from grace, where brokenness enters the world, and it creates this trajectory of redemption towards the ultimate kingdom. And that as we read Scripture, it informs the way we see the future. It teaches us what it means to become more holy, what it means to understand the Scriptures, what it means to move through life 
interpreting how does this Bible speak to me today. So when we look at the text, we want to look at it through these lenses. This morning, my hope was just to kind of whet our appetite, to begin to get us to ask some questions about how is it that I really look at the Bible. And then a little bit later, we're going to tackle a different elephant this morning. We're going to talk about the role of women in the church. All right? Let me pray, and then uh, we're going to spend a little time greeting each other. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your presence in our midst. We're grateful for how your word, although at times it seems confusing or we come at it from so many different angles, that we actually believe that as we look into your word that you speak to us, that you inform us about who you are, that our interpretation isn't the king, that our opinion isn't the king, but that you are the king. And that as we lean into that and as we understand what you're speaking to us in this grand story that is history, that is your history, your story, may we uh, be inspired to live as followers of you and to pursue a knowledge of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This weekend, we had a spectacular weekend. We did Life as Mission. Yes, one person went with us. It was awesome. <laughs> so good. No, we had a, a fabulous time just uh, gathering with leadership in the church and uh, really just challenging one another to dream. Dream about the future, dream about what's next uh, for our community, uh, for our city, and uh, just continue to pray. Uh, can continue to pray for how God wants to move in you, first of all, and then in your group, in this community, and in the city. We are uh, talking about another elephant this morning. It is an elephant that I think has caused a lot of division in the church throughout the years. It is one that has created tension in homes, debate in our culture. It has spawned in many ways dysfunctional church leadership. It has brought oppression. The list goes on and on and on. We are talking about a significant subject, and that being gender in the church, specifically women's role in the church. We talked uh, early at the very first week about whenever we enter into these subjects to have uh, just an arms down posture. So I'm just going to encourage you to shake them out, get them down, relax. We're going to have fun with this over the next uh, little bit. I'm, I'm going to share part of the talk today and then part of it next week. And uh, we're just going to try to lean into this and uh, listen to what God has to say related to women's role in the church. One of the things that I think is clear right up front is that nobody, I think, across any spectrum has a problem with women in the church, nor do they have a problem with women being involved in ministry at some level. The basic bottom line issue, the reason that it is an elephant that demands attention is because the issue or the debate is around women's voice and leadership in the church. So it's not about whether a woman is involved in ministry. It's not about whether a woman is engaged in all kinds of opportunities in the church. It's really about these two things. Where is a woman's voice? Where is it recognized? Where is it not recognized? And what is their role in terms of leadership? What should they do? What should they not do? Now, in order for us to talk about this particular subject, I think it's really important for us to get a biblical framework. So what we're going to do 
is just pause for a second and kind of um, back up to the beginning of time. I think it's a good place to start whenever we talk about subjects to kind of start with where everything started. So we're going to go to Genesis, we're going to go to the beginning, and I want you to picture just for a moment what it was like in the garden. You have perfection. You have everything created the way that it was intended to be. In fact, God speaks and says, all of this is brought forth, and then He says, this is good. I've done a good work. I've done great work. Nobody could top what I've done. And so he creates this beautiful, idyllic world. Everything is the way that it's supposed to be. It's whole. It's complete. We speak of it in terms of shalom. And into that situation, we get our first glimpse of what it's like to be both male and female. And he says right at the very beginning, in the beginning, man and woman were created. It was at his ultimate height of creation. And men and women were created equal. Men and women were created both to be image bearers. That both male and female are created in the image of God. That we bear His likeness. That we have intellect, emotions, will. That we are created to be His children. So He created male and female. In fact, He declared that male and female were both created good. There was equality. And we were both given roles to have dominion over the earth. We all had specific tasks. God said, I've placed all of this under your feet. Psalms speaks to that idea too. In uh, chapter 19, I believe, where it just says that everything, you're to rule with me over creation. And so he gives to both men and women dominion over the earth, over the creatures, over the land. And he says, work it, till it, and care for it. And so, you have... Both male and female, created in the image of God, one in Christ, equal. At the beginning, pause there. We're going to fast forward all the way to the very end. Okay, The consummation of all things. When the kingdom of God is established in its complete fullness. When there is no debate anymore as to who rules and reigns in authority over the whole earth. What we have at that point is us, Male and female, co-reigning with Christ. Again, what we see in the Scriptures, that it speaks to the finality of all things, or eternity. It speaks to the idea that we, again, male and female, are equal. That there is complete equality. That we will rule and reign together. That we will be given responsibilities in the kingdom. And we will all exercise those responsibilities under His leadership and authority. So what we have at the beginning is equality, perfection, ideal scenario. What we have at the end is the exact same thing. In fact, Galatians alludes to that idea. It says this in Galatians chapter 3, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What this text is indicating, both salvifically, but also speaking into the reality of what eternity will look like, is that male will not rule over female, that free will not rule over slave, that a certain race will not rule over another race, 
That we are all equal in Christ. That we are all His children. We all enter into the kingdom with the same footing. It is by His grace alone. Okay? So we find that at the very beginning of things, there's this original creation that was ideal and perfect. The very end of things, we will be restored to this perfect creation again. And all of that shows equality. All of that shows this perfect relationship between men and women and between men and women and God. Okay? So the issue really is the in-between. So if, if things aren't that way right now, if things aren't the way they used to be, nor are things the way they will be, we've got this in-between, and what do we do with the in-between? What are we called to do with this in-between? Because you have perfect equal and perfect equal, and by all admission from all of us, I think we would indicate that it isn't always been perfect equal in the in-between. So why? Well, that takes us to Genesis chapter 3. I think many of you are familiar with Genesis chapter 3. That is when uh, beauty and wonderful was destroyed. That's when perfect was marred. That's when everything kind of went south in a hurry. Most of you are familiar with the story. It's referred to as the fall. It happens in the garden. There's this moment where a serpent comes along, deceives Eve. She takes the fruit eats it, hands it to Adam, Adam eats it, and then they go and hide, the scriptures say. In fact, God, they've got this really cool interchange in Genesis where it says that God kind of shows up that day and goes, hey, uh, where, where is everyone? There's only two of you and I can't find you. Like, <laughs> what's going on? And uh, all of a sudden they kind of creep out from behind the bushes and they say, well, we hid He's like, what are you hiding for? And they're like, well, we're naked. And he goes, well, who told you you're naked? And then he does, like, I can just imagine him, like, a parent saying this, like, did you eat the apple? You know, like, just kind of really just asking him that question. And then we, we have the most grand case of blame shifting that starts to happen. All right? So this is what the, the text says. It says that uh, then the man said, well... It's her fault, really. The woman gave it to me, and then I ate it, but it's really, it's all about her. And so then he turns to Eve, and he goes, so what's up? What did you do? And she goes, it's not really me at all. It's this snake. It's this serpent. It's not me. And so we got this blame shifting going on. Passing the buck, going, it's not my fault. And so then God goes, all right, sin has entered the world. Beauty has been destroyed, and there will be judgment. There will be a curse. There will be a problem because of it. And so he begins to, to curse systematically a few things. And one of the first things he curses is the serpent. That's why all of us hate snakes, is because he just went right after the serpent. Second, he then curses both man and woman and the earth. Okay, He, he goes into, and here's a, a few of the things he says. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you, because of sin, In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So, as you work the ground, as you take care of the creation that I have given you, it's now become hard. It's become difficult. There's going to be thorns and thistles, there's going to be weeds, gardening is not going to be nearly as easy as it once was. So he starts off by saying that, and then he says, To the woman specifically, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And all the women say, Amen. 
It, it, that happens, right? It, it became difficult. It became painful. It became a challenge. And so a curse has come down on both the earth and both male and female. And then the last statement that Jesus makes regarding um, the curse is in Genesis 3. It says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That last part is the amplified version. Right there. So, he, he will rule over you, is the statement that is made. Now, what is very clear in this text is that the hierarchical ruling of a man over a woman is flatly stated to be the product of sin and a part of the curse. That before that, there was equality, there was perfection, there was this ideal relationship. Sin entered the world, and at that point, when this curse came down, there was this power struggle that began. This who claims leadership over whom. The distortion between equality, the distortion between a perfect relationship entered, and there began to be this who's going to rule? Who's going to be the one that determines things? Who's, as they say, going to wear the pants in the family, right? Who's going to be the one that calls the shots? And leadership became a struggle. But what we see clearly in the text is this hierarchical ruling of a man over a woman is a result of sin. It's a part of the curse. Now let's pause there for just a moment again. Just to recap where we've been. At the very beginning of all time, man and woman created in the image of God, perfect relationship, equal. At the very end of time, man and woman created in the image of God, perfect, equal again, restored creation. In the in-between, a distorted view of the way things are supposed to be because the distortion of the brokenness of sin has entered the world. Okay? So now what we hope that we can do is piece together throughout the Scriptures a grand story of what it looks like for us to relate to one another and what does the Scriptures say about women's role within the church and within the family, within all of that. Make sense? So what we're going to do is continue to like, look at this framework through three particular angles. The first, I'll give you all three at first, okay? I believe the answer to the opinion of what is the role of women in the church can be found in these three kind of framing ideas, all right? First one is this, what the Bible says women did in the corpus of Scripture. If you look at all of Scripture, what did women do? What roles did they play throughout Scripture? The second one is, what is the Spirit gifted women to do? Because whatever he's gifted them to do, he would probably likely expect them to do. And then last, what our calling as kingdom people is. So I'm going to roll through these in succession. Right? The story of the Bible, I believe, is the story of God's role of using men and women to move us towards the ultimate consummation of his kingdom. All right? So, one of the questions that I think brings insight into what is the role of women in the church is what did women do during Bible times? Very plain and simple. We could go through hundreds of different illustrations. I've chosen just three from the Old Testament and three from the New Testament to kind of inform our thinking. The first is the role of women in the Old Testament. One of the things that you see throughout the Old Testament is a substantial amount of leadership from women. Now, this is at a time when, culturally speaking, there was great oppression to women. This is at a time when it would have been absolutely countercultural to consider anything 
where women would be leading in any capacity. And into that scenario, there's three people that I think I want to highlight. The first being Miriam. Many of you know the story of Miriam. She was a spiritual leader among the people of Israel. Many of you recognize that Moses was the lawgiver. He was the one that gave the Ten Commandments from God. Aaron served as a priest during that very same time. And then Miriam was what would be considered a prophetess. She was declaring the very truth of God from God. And in fact, in Micah 6.4, it makes the statement that I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam, that together, the three of them, formed this leadership group that essentially led millions of Israelites during a season of their history. Another example would be Deborah. Deborah was a, a national leader. Another word for that would be a judge. She came in the middle of this segment of judges where one judge followed another judge in ruling and reigning over the land. So she would have been considered the leader of the nation. She would have been considered maybe the figurehead, the person that ruled over the people, the person that gave guidance to the way the people of Israel should live. And it says in uh, Judges 4, Now Deborah, a prophet, so not only was she a prophet, not only was she declaring the words of God, but it says she was leading Israel at the time. She was given leadership from God, speaking the very words of God. The third one that I want to highlight, and the last one in the Old Testament, is Huldah. Now, Huldah was a prophet in 2 Kings chapter 22. This is where you kind of catch a little glimpse of what her role was within the Old Testament, and specifically within the rule of King Josiah. Now, in 2 Kings 22, just a brief story, Josiah discovers that there is the law. There's a scroll that's been found under all these other scrolls. They pull it out and they go, this might be the book. This might be the book that we need to consult and live by and follow. And so what he does is he says, go find a prophet of God. And he names the prophet that he wants to come. Now here's what's interesting. This is during the time where he could have chosen any number of prophets. Here were some of the prophets at his disposal that were all contemporaries together. Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. He could have called any of those. He skipped all of them and went to Huldah and said, Bring her. She will inform us if this is the Word of God. So you see this vast role in the Old Testament of women both in leadership, in declaring the Word of God, in instructing kings. There's a pretty substantial movement of how God uses women in the Old Testament. So let's move to the New Testament. I'm going to give three examples again. We'll start with Phoebe. Phoebe was a deacon and a benefactor to the church. She's specifically talked about quite often in uh, Romans and in Paul's ministry. In Romans 16, he says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, it's the same rendering as you find in all of the statements about deacons in the New Testament, same word, a deacon of the church, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you for she has been the benefactor of many people including me. That Phoebe was a deacon, a leader, a helper. 
she was someone that started churches, that was a foundational in the movement of Paul. He lists multiple people and multiple women in his ministry as being significant contributors to the kingdom. You go a little further, and Priscilla is another one. You often hear Priscilla always mentioned with Aquila, right? You've probably heard that many times. Notice, it's not Aquila and then Priscilla, but rather almost every single time stated Priscilla, female first, Aquila, male second, which would be an oddity at the time. She was a church leader and she was a teacher, a teacher of scripture and theology. Here's two particular passages. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, not only, but for all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. The second little passage, Apollos had just been starting his ministries, going around teaching everybody about the gospel. And then it says this, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. I think that's pretty interesting. He's declaring from the tabernacle the teachings of the Old Testament, and they're like, hey, why don't don't you come over for dinner? We we should talk. Let me me share some things. And she begins to inform her and her husband together what, what it means to follow Jesus and what this reality is all about. The last but not least is Junia. Junia is an apostle. In uh, Romans 16, it says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now there has been debate in the past where they, instead of saying outstanding among the apostles, they say outstanding to the apostles. Like, They really like them. They're good friends of the apostles rather than Junia herself being an apostle. Let me remind you, the role of an apostle in the early church would have been quite significant. By that I mean this would be in her job description. Evangelize in all of the area. Teach. Be the guardian of the gospel. Preach. Yeah, I said preach also, not just teach. Preach, establish and lead churches, begin churches, plant churches. She would have had to have been a person of utmost character. And she would have been someone who walked and talked with Jesus and then led movements of people who were following Him. So all throughout the Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, when we see this picture of what women did in the Scriptures that demonstrate great leadership, a great voice. That's the first one. The second point is this, what the Spirit has gifted women to do. And I think the first indication of what the Spirit has gifted women to do is right when the Spirit shows up on the scene. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter's declaring... They've been waiting for this moment. Jesus says, like, hey, hang out here. I want you to stay here. And then my spirit's going to come. And things are going to happen that have not happened before because my spirit is on sight. Okay? This happens. And in Acts chapter 2, right at the very beginning, Peter gets up and he starts to declare what has happened because the spirit has descended. People are, like, freaking out. They're speaking in all different languages. Miracles are starting to happen. People are starting to trust in Jesus. And then this is the statement that is made in Acts chapter 2. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, on all people. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, shall speak the words of God, shall teach and preach. And their young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they, both male and female, shall prophesy. They shall teach, they shall instruct. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves, if God gifts women for prophecy, just a little question, then why are so few women speaking? Something to think about. Spiritual gifts is another significant aspect, not just at the very beginning with that statement, but then we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Spirit of God begins to distribute gifts to His people. And it starts off by saying this, I won't read the whole text, but... Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. That according to His own discretion, it says, that the Spirit of God imparts gifts to each of us to be used for the sake of the body of Christ. Gifts of leadership, gifts of speaking, gifts of service, gifts of generosity. The list goes on and on. If you go further in the text, to some the utterance of wisdom, to the others the utterance of knowledge, some miracles, some prophecy, some tongues, some etc., etc., etc. And then it finishes with this phrase. Now you, all of you, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed... First apostles, then prophets, one that he just described as to everyone, and then teachers and miracles and gifts of healing for the sake of the body, so that the body might be built up, so that we all might be in unity with one another. These gifts have been given. All right, moving on. Third point. What is our calling as kingdom people? So we looked at this idea first. What have women done? What have women done throughout the corpus of Scripture. Second, what is it that the Spirit of God has equipped women to do? How does He want them to be used within the context of the body of Christ? And the last point is, what is our calling as kingdom people? And I'll use this quote from a good, good speaker. His name's Greg Boy. He says this, As much as possible, we are to manifest now what will be true for the whole creation in the future. Let that sink in for a moment. He says, as kingdom people, as much as possible we are to manifest now what will be true for the whole of creation in the future. What he's saying is that we are called to live into the reality of what will be. In fact, Jesus speaks to that idea when he says, His kingdom come, His will be done, is what we're supposed to pray. That His kingdom will come and be realized in the present and even more so in the future. That we look to the horizon of what will be and we enact that now. And here's where I think that we've gone a little bit sideways because I think, sadly, the church at large has perpetuated the fall as a permanent condition. What we have said across the board is 
What happened at the fall just, I'm sorry, it just is. And it is for all of the in-between. Right? But it strikes me as odd that we try to do as much as we can not to have work be hard. Have you ever noticed that? It's true. Work, God says it's going to be hard, and we go, let's figure out how to, to fix that. Childbearing is going to be hard, and we go, well, we're going to come up with lots of ways to fix this, because it's hard. And then we go, oh, shucks, ladies, I'm sorry. That's what we do with the third one. We go, I wish it wasn't so, but it is. We just have to live in this reality, right? Wrong. We are called as kingdom people to live into the reality of what will be in the present. Another way of saying it is this. That if you believe that in the kingdom of God, the subordination of women to men will not be a reality, there will be no hierarchy at the end, there wasn't at the beginning, nor will there be at the end, then our view of the future should shape the reality of the present. So manifest now what will be true for the future. Now, I believe that those three things that we just talked about, what women did, what the Spirit has gifted women to do, and our calling to live the future in the present are all three things that paint a framework for us that speaks to the overall narrative, the overall story being one that empowers women, that gives a voice to women, that gives leadership to women, not just in the home, not just in the marketplace, but also in the church. That's what I believe the Scriptures is teaching. Now, I know, because I'm not dumb, that there are a lot of, but what about, what about this? What about that passage? What about, I think, I heard, okay, so that's what next week's about, okay? (laughs) Next week is about all of the whatabouts, okay? And so here's what I want you to do. We've, We've been throwing up the texting text. Write this number down, it's also in your bulletin. If you have questions, if you're like, you're Russ, you're a moron, I don't even know what you were saying up here this morning, text it, I don't care. Write it in. Ask a question, and then next week the goal is to begin to further just move from this framework that we created, what happened, what was, what is, to what is the specifics saying, and how does the specifics relate to the grand narrative? Because the grand narrative should inform them as much as they inform the grand narrative. Make sense? That's what next week is about. Let's pray. And then we're out of here. God, we are thankful that your word is truth. That your word speaks to us as kingdom people, inviting us to participate in what you are doing. God, help us to have eyes to see how you're moving. Help us to participate in what you are leading us into. God, give us grace this week to live out in this city as people of peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.